Hey, I'm Dawn Tree. Welcome to Atypical Parenting, the podcast for people who love someone who's autistic. I believe that it is high time that we as parents and loved ones started focusing on ourselves and how we can change as we strive to support the people that we love. I am so glad you're here with me. Together, we're taking the steps necessary to change the way the world looks at autism. Please don't forget to take a second to rate and review Atypical Parenting wherever you're listening. I hope you enjoy this week's episode. I have a bit of a cold today, so I hope you'll forgive my raspy voice. It seems to be the season for respiratory infections. But at any rate, I'm on the mend, so that's a wonderful thing. And I wanted to just jump on and do a quick intro because I was recently on somebody else's podcast, which is another podcast geared towards autistic people and autism and all of those things that go along with it. So it's called The Neurodiverging Podcast with... Danielle Sullivan, and she is an autistic certified neurodiversity life coach, a trauma-informed specialist, and a neurodiversity parent coach. If you've been listening, you might remember that I actually did have her on, and we talked about neurodiverse families because she is neurodivergent, and she has children who are on the spectrum, and it's a new kind of exciting way to raise your family when you think about these differences. But she and I had a conversation about psychiatry, which obviously is kind of my gig in life. And uh, I did do a little bit of rambling here and there, but overall it was a pretty good interview and I wanted to share that with you. So please stay tuned. It's coming up next. I hope you enjoy it. Well, welcome to the Neurodiverging Podcast, Dawn. I'm so glad to see you again. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. It's wonderful. This is so great to be able to swap podcast episodes like this. It's really nice to build a little bit of a rapport and be able to talk to slightly different audiences because I think we have some crossover, but also some uh, differences in in people who tend to listen to us. So absolutely. Would you mind just like to start us off? Tell us a little bit about your background because you also work in the autism space and the neurodiversity space, but from a very different lens, I think. Yeah, so I have a little bit of a diverse background in this realm because I come at autism from a couple of different directions. So when I was 19, I was a high school dropout and I had a son who became the joy of my life. He was very what we called strong-willed back then. And it wasn't until later on that he was diagnosed with autism in his early teens So I was a 19-year-old single mother. I had dropped out of high school when I had this child who just was amazing. He was perfect and beautiful and precocious and all of the things. But everybody was like, oh my gosh, he's like extra, right? Like he was the most strong-willed kid you ever wanted to meet and the traditional parenting strategies didn't work. And so I was just young and stupid and going along with things. And finally, he was diagnosed with autism. But in the midst of all of that, we had a lot of psychiatric treatment we had a lot of bad psychiatric treatment. yeah. And because of that, it pushed me into this career that I'm in. And so now I'm a psychiatric nurse practitioner. So it's sort of like the very short story of a long psychodrama, but um, I saw the kind of care that was out there and it wasn't very good. And I knew I could do it better. So now I'm a psychiatric nurse practitioner. I run a private practice. I treat all kinds of patients. Um, but also quite a few autistic folks. I also work at a school for autism, doing psychiatry there. And um, it's been, it's just, it's kind of become my calling in a strange way. Yeah. 
I really resonate with the from from a different avenue of coming into the neurodiversity space. I was late diagnosed um, when my son was diagnosed, and coming into the space and trying to get supports and finding that what was there was either not helpful or actively harmful in many mm-hmm. cases mm-hmm. and wanting to to you know to then becoming kind of the calling of well how can i with my my certain skills which are not psychiatric medical skills but with what i have how could i offer better resources for folks um and so i i really felt like there was a good resonance and 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 i've talked with lots of other clients and and other podcast guests too who come in and are like this isn't good enough we we need to make this better yeah yeah, yeah. so in my practice i do treat autistic people and i felt like i was making a difference there um but you're right like i know from when i was raising my son that there are very few supports out there and today there's so much more available and yet there's still not nearly enough. Yeah. And so I talk about this on, I'm also, I also have a podcast, as you know, just so that your audience knows it's called Atypical Parenting. And I started it just because I needed to reach, I wanted to share with a wider audience the things that I knew that I had learned over the years. Folks, I was a recent guest on Don's podcast and it's a really good resource if you are in the space and you know, are struggling and want more. So there's a link below. So please check out Dawn's podcast. Um, So one of the things that we have talked about on this podcast, neurodiverging uh, kind of occasionally before, I think we had, we had Dr. Roy Grinker, Roy Richard Grinker on um, last year. And he did this book that was like the study of the origin of psychiatry and through World War II and through PTSD, you know, um, and, and then, how psychiatry sort of gelled together as a field of people studying all these disparate, disparate um, mental illnesses or, or, you know, neurotypes, depending on how you frame all that. Um, and it was a really interesting, and I know you haven't listened to this podcast, so I'm not trying to quiz you on it. Um, but what, <laughs> what really came together for me in reading his book and talking with him was this idea that psychiatry as a kind of institution um, is still relatively new and still very um what's the word like there's lots of little bits yeah it's very subjective and there's lots of different ideas that are I think for many of us as lay people or I can speak for myself anyway as a lay person my mother's an ER nurse so I have I guess that little sideways view into what nursing looks like from her perspective but that's it um as a lay person psychiatry always had this sort of gravitas and this sort of like they know what to do. They know how to fix the problem. Right. These are like well-educated, evidence-based, all this kind of um, heft to it, I yeah. guess, as a yeah. medical framing. Mm-hmm. And then to come into it as a late diagnosed autistic and recognize, and also talking to other podcast guests, like I just mentioned other things, and to recognize that actually maybe psychiatry is relatively new, still very subjective, like you said, and um sometimes less evidence-based than you would hope, perhaps. Um, so I'm just really interested to talk to you today and get your perspective of, of kind of what you've gone through and, and what you've learned. Um, I guess to start off, could we talk about, are there places within the institution of psychiatry that you've experienced that are actually supportive for autistic folks? Like, what does psychiatry do well? So, you know, in psychiatry, autism is an interesting diagnosis, right? Because it's it's neurologic. It's not 
technically psychiatric. Yeah. Um, but it does come along with some difficult psychiatric symptoms, right? Like incapacitating anxiety, mm-hmm. social anxiety, and these things make it difficult to function. And so I think if you can find a provider who is autistic friendly, who is familiar with autism, then you can get relief from some of those symptoms, which honestly like massively can improve your quality of life if you're an autistic person struggling. And so I think that's what psychiatry does well now, but I think the point you bring up is excellent because psychiatry is not like cardiology. In cardiology, we take an EKG, we see all the electrical impulses in your heart. We know exactly what it's doing, where it's beating, what's happening with all of the blood as it shuffles around your heart. We know what medications will change, whatever the problem is. In psychiatry, your diagnosis, your treatment plan, it's only as good as the person who's listening to you. And so I'd say like, number one, the first thing you need to do when you go into the psychiatric realm is find a provider who's going to listen to you. Because if you have a provider who thinks they just know everything, they know nothing, right? Because the only thing they need to know is you. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, you there are good providers out there. I think if you can find one, there are medications. The medications we have now are so much better than the medications. Even 20 years ago when I started as a nurse, mm-hmm. you know, we 30 years, God, time flies. <laughs> so... In general, psychiatry and neuroscience, there is like no better time to have a problem than today, honestly, because, you know, the treatments we had in the past, they could range from barbaric to completely ineffective to toxic, right? Like, and now the treatments, they're much better. They've come up with drugs that have a lot fewer side effects. They're not going to make you fat, lazy, and unable to want to have sex, right? Like that's the problem with all those meds in the past. Yeah. It's a good time to get a little bit of treatment if you can find a good provider. Yeah. I think one thing you're sort of alluding to that I appreciate is that there's still a lot of stigma around medication, right? Uh, Around any kind of medication, whether that's ADHD meds, um, you know, which have what a hundred years of history behind them and are well-studied. Even my mother who is, you know, a very well-educated doctorate level nurse educator, we were talking about, for example, antipsychotic um, mm-hmm, class medication, mm-hmm. which unfortunately was used a lot in the ER setting, mm-hmm. um, you know, when she was in the ER 30 years ago, probably around the same, um, and um, how much those medications could have a negative or, or disastrous effect on patients who were, to whom they were administered. Right. Um, and I was saying, well, you know, when we're talking about sort of autistic folks who are say having a, a panic attack or a social anxiety episode, um, there are options for them that don't include those heavy psychotic medications. Right. But I think the awareness, even among the medical professional field um, is maybe not as high. You know, everybody's got their little pocket of their knowledge of what they work in. Um, yeah. Well, I think too, wondering. when you're dealing with autism, if you're not familiar with autism, mm-hmm. like, an agitated episode in autism or like an episode of emotional overwhelm, it's pretty intense, right? So Mm -hmm. if you're not familiar with it and you see that happening, you're like, whoa, let's, we better throw the heavy duty stuff at them. Mm -hmm. And in doing that, you're causing so much more harm than good because not only do they not need that, because this is just the way 
their body and system functions, Mm -hmm. but it's going to cause problems because their nervous systems are so much more sensitive than other people's. Mm -hmm. You know, the first antipsychotics that were developed, the first generation ones like Thorazine and Haldol, Mm -hmm. we learned later on. Now that's years of administering high doses of these drugs to people. We now know that they're neurotoxic. They kill brain cells, right? Mm -hmm. The newer antipsychotics promote neurogenesis. And so that's a perfect example of how far psychiatry has come. Yeah. So, you know, the, the medications today really, the topic of medications is a hard one for me because when oh, I yeah. started practicing, I really wanted to be holistic because mm-hmm. honestly, giving my son medications was number one, the hardest thing I ever did. One of the hardest things I ever did, but also one of the stupidest things I ever did, because I did it on the advice of people who didn't know what they were doing. So I think that, you know, for me, the best option is no medication, right? Mm -hmm. Our bodies are designed to be okay, to fix themselves, Mm -hmm. to, you know, to manage. But that being said, there are some mental health symptoms, especially in autism, that cause a lot of distress and that Mm -hmm. cause a lot of disruption in your ability to just simply live your life. Mm-hmm. So when that is the case, medication is definitely the lesser of two evils in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. And as somebody who also has medicated children, which is a really hard decision um, and, and must've been much more difficult when the meds that were available were toxic, toxic <laughs> and also just newer. Oh um, my God. Because as an evidence, I mean, you can't be evidence-based with everything and there's problems with evidence-based as well. But um, as somebody who sort of leans on, you know, can I find studies for this? How many people has this been tested on? You know, what kind of process did it go through? Um, choosing to medicate uh, even myself or a child um, or to say to a client, you know, have you talked to somebody about mm. medication because- this is not a coaching issue that you're bringing in. This is something that needs other kinds of support or, or that may benefit from other kinds of support. Um, those decisions are really hard because there, there's, first of all, all the stigma, there's all this history of medications harming po- people and especially people who are otherwise um, disempowered, right? Whether they're yeah, autistic or yeah. of color or, of, or their children or whoever. Absolutely. So there's all this po- politics in it that make the decision really difficult, but also just purely as a parent choosing whether to medicate a child, that is a hugely difficult decision. And for me, it came down to function. And mm-hmm. will this improve overall well-being for the kiddo? Will exactly. their lives be happier? Will they be able to do the things they want to do more easily? Right. Exactly. You know, versus any other kind of decision making. But it was, but I think everybody has their own sort of decision tree with that. It's a really challenging hard. Um, It's so hard. It's so hard. You know, one thing that I didn't understand when I was a young mother raising my son was like you said at the beginning, I went into these psychiatric providers and I thought they're the experts. They know what they're doing, right? Mm -hmm. They're giving me, and I would ask really, I thought pretty intelligent questions. I was a nurse eventually as he was going through grade school and I had somewhat of a understanding and they would give me really great responses In hindsight, I now know that the drugs they were feeding my son, uh, which I am complicit in, they didn't know. Yeah. You know, I mean, as a provider, I have a private practice, the office I'm in here today. I'll have drug reps knock on my door, bring me coffee, chat me up and tell me how wonderful their drug is. They will 
cajole me to use their drugs. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times you're using drugs as like, eh, let's throw it against the wall and see if it sticks, right? Mm -hmm. Like, because all you know is what the drug rep told you and they are nothing but a salesperson. Mm -hmm. And new providers are always going to experiment. Mm -hmm. And their experimentation is going to be influenced by the drug representatives who come in to sell you the drugs. Mm -hmm. So you have to, I think, you know, I think that's why it's important to have a really experienced provider, number one, because they have to understand that about it. But number two, I don't think you should ever give your kid a drug that hasn't been around for a while, mm -hmm. ever, ever. Yeah. If you have a drug that's approved for use in children, that's your mm -hmm. best bet because you know that that drug is tested specifically on children. Mm -hmm. And those trials are a lot more stringent as far as oversight goes than other trials. So yeah. if you have a drug that's approved for use in children, it's generally a pretty safe drug. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, and I think for maybe folks who are listening, who are not familiar with this process or who are thinking through it, um, I, what I think you're alluding to is the fact that many providers will prescribe um, sort of sideways, right? So this drug isn't uh, clinically tested or approved for this use, mm -hmm. but we think it has you can say this better than me because you're an actual. Yeah. So provider. this is this is a really <laughs> interesting topic that you bring up is the idea of drug approvals, right? And off-label uses. If you're a specialist in psychiatry, you should be like really hip to the drugs because there's not that many, and there's not that many classes that you use. So when you look at the drugs, though, you have classes that are all somewhat similar structurally and what they do in your body functionally. So you'll have the only way drugs get approved for a certain indication like autism or autistic related irritability. We have a couple of drugs approved for that. The only way they get approved is if they do trials. Yeah. Trials on children are really hard to do because the requirements are so hard to meet mm -hmm. and recruitment is so hard because who is going to say, here's my kid experiment on them, right? Yeah. Like it's not easy to find people to be in this study. And so off-label prescribing is really a very common thing. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. That's mm -hmm. what I do want people to understand. So part of what I'm hearing is that there's just to be really reductive at you is that there's, it's really hard <laughs> as a patient. Um, so speaking as an autistic person, right? Um, if I were having a psychiatric issue and wanted to go like, find somebody to offer support, whether that's medication or other intervention. Um, what are some things that you would maybe recommend patients do? You mentioned finding somebody that you feel like is really listening to you, which I absolutely agree with, whether you're looking for a psychiatrist or a therapist or any kind of professional, someone who hears you. Is there anything else other folks that folks could do to sort of assess um, whether the relationship is supportive and whether the recommendations are reasonable ones, I guess, within, within the field? Yeah, that's an excellent question. It's an excellent question because, you know, I've had mm -hmm. autistic patients come to me and then, you know, leave and other providers will tell them they're, they're psychotic, mm -hmm. they're schizophrenic, like all these things, just because mm -hmm. they don't know. Um, and it's hard to know who to trust, right? Mm there really isn't a lot of specialty training in psychiatry for autism in particular, mm -hmm. which I think is troublesome. 
because it really is a very distinct specialty. I think you want to look for somebody who has experience with autism and that may be in their training or, you know, if they, that would be a good question to ask, do you treat other autistic people, Mm -hmm. you know, so that you get a sense for their understanding or their, their history with it. Mm -hmm. The other thing I'd say is, you know, you really need to listen to what they're saying, because if they're treating autism, like any other mental health issue, then we have a problem because people with autism, their nervous systems do not respond to the medications in the same way generally. Mm -hmm. So you really need to ask the provider. It's kind of like dating. You have to do interviews. Unfortunately, it's time consuming. It's frustrating. It's, you know, a huge, huge hassle, but it's really the only way I think Mm -hmm. because you can find somebody with the best reviews or the recommendations or whatever. And you get in there and you're like, Oh, this is terrible. (laughs) So number one, you want to make sure it's a good fit. If you are the person looking for care or if your child is the one you need care for, are they comfortable with the provider, right? Does the provider make them feel comfortable in their office space? Is it quiet? Is it bright? Is it dim? Right. All these things. So you need a space that's comfortable and you need a provider who's willing to accommodate a little bit. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember going to offices with my son when he was young and there were providers who were great, a couple, not very many, unfortunately, but there were also providers who were like, you know, very dismissive, very rude, very um, unyielding when it came to things like him being overstimulated or the Mm -hmm. lights were too bright or, you know, any number of things. So you want to find somebody who's going to accommodate you a little bit and you want them to do that on their own. Right. Like you don't want to have to have your kid have a meltdown for them to go, oh, I guess we can turn off the lights. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You want somebody who's going to have a little bit of forethought. Yeah. If you find somebody, you have to decide whether you can trust them or not. And I think if a provider is able to sit down with you, have a direct conversation with you and say, hey, I've put together this plan and I, this is why. I think this plan will work Mm -hmm. and takes the time to explain it to you. You know, I think sometimes you just have to take a leap of faith. I think the hard part is deciding and figuring out whether you can trust your provider or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And many of us speaking from the autistic side have had so many negative interactions with the medical system, um, you know, being taken to the ER for a meltdown, being put in psychiatric hold for a meltdown, you know, those kinds of things, but even smaller micro, um, micro traumas, I guess, like, yeah, um, definitely having to go in the bright lights and the loud noise for every single doctor's appointment since we were babies, you know, over time can really build up a lot of fear in interacting with the medical system. Um, even if nothing like capital T trauma has ever happened to you, um, a lot of us struggle. And so, well, I, I think, you know, being autistic in a neurotypical society, yeah. honestly, there are so many interactions every day and situations. I don't know how you would get to adulthood without experiencing somewhat significant trauma. Yeah, I very much agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's a piece that um, I don't see always recognized in the wider, not just psychiatry, but sort of the the helping 
field, the supporters yeah. fields, yeah. whether that's, you know, nursing, um, psychiatry, therapy, counseling services. Um, I think that trauma is very under. Yeah. Underappreciated. Under, thank you. That'll work. Yeah. 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 I think honestly, if you are looking for a provider and you say to them, tell me what you do differently when you're treating autistic patients. Mm-hmm. If they say to you, I don't, I just treat the symptoms. I don't do anything different. That's kind of a red flag. Yeah. That's you a really good I mean? question. So if a provider says, well, autism is tricky, it's, and they give you a few of the things that we need to be concerned about, mm-hmm. I think then that's a person you want to further explore a relationship with. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good way to frame it because you don't want a sort of, um, I'm thinking of when, when you do, you know, when you're talking about race, right. Um, there are the people who say that we're, we're colorblind. We're going to treat everybody the same. And although it's a sort of maybe well-meaning answer, it really indicates to me anyway, that this is somebody who is not very familiar with the different ways people of different races are treated. And you're, you're, well, I treat everyone autistic the same, or I just treat the symptoms sort of reminds me or seems kind of analogous to that of, you know, we want to treat everyone as human first, but we also have to understand that people are coming with different backgrounds with different needs. And we need to be looking at them as individuals who, who are also part of a, you know, a society (laughs) um, where some people are more appreciated or more valued than others, even though we wish that weren't the case. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So it's it's a really good question to ask. And you have to remember in psychiatry, that is what is taught. Basically, Mm -hmm. it's like, you know, none of that matters. The underlying cause of a condition, especially when we're talking about medicine, you know, I come from a nursing background, which is a little more holistic, but in medicine in general, it's about the symptom, right? We're not looking Mm -hmm. at the underlying cause at all. And when you think about that with autism, that totally is going to push all the considerations that need to be taken with autistic patients, just pushing them out the window and focusing on the symptom. And that's not going to work. You know, it's complex. So you, you do have to remember that that is what, you know, is taught in school. It's what people learn. And uh, it's not, it's not appropriate. It's not effective. Mm-hmm. It's not going to help you in the long run or your autistic loved one. Do you know of any movement in psychiatry for, for, practitioners to become more trauma-informed because what I sort of hear a little bit or what I noticed is that um, when you say just treat the symptom most of my symptoms uh, for example my psychiatric system symptoms and also my autistic symptoms (laughs) quote heavy (laughs) heavy quote unquote um, quote unquote autistic symptoms are a result of trauma um, yeah. of some, in some way, right. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them are from other things, but a lot of them are just like you said, the world isn't set up for me. I get overwhelmed. I get overstimulated. Um, I process emotions differently, those kinds of things. And so, um, I need practitioners or I will be served best, I guess, by practitioners who have some trauma informed background. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have no idea if that's common i know it's becoming more common in coaching and in therapy and in counseling is yeah, there any push been, to do that i think there's been a little bit of a push there's been i have noticed at the conferences i've been to that there's more modules about trauma informed care and so i think you know we're all a little bit more aware of it and you know this sort of is i feel kind of conflicted saying this mm-hmm. but you need somebody who knows what they're talking about so mm-hmm. like if you're 
a provider who has perfectly healthy mental health, Mm -hmm. that's awesome. I'm happy for you, but you're not going to get it like somebody who struggles with their own anxiety or depression, right? Mm -hmm. Just like autism. If you don't know anyone with autism, you haven't been up close and personal with them. You've only treated them as patients, perhaps in passing. Mm -hmm. You don't know what you don't know. Yeah. Right. So in a sense, trauma is the same mm-hmm. because if you have a provider who has no idea what it feels like to live in PTSD or even acute trauma reaction, mm-hmm. I don't know how much help that provider is going to provide. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that's kind of an awful thing to say, right? Like all these providers out there, if you've lived a golden life, God bless you, because I don't think there's that many people out there who have. Um, at the end of the day, we all get something, right? We all yeah. get some sort of stress. Being human is hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think that lends also to thinking about age and experience and wisdom and all of that, too. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That's really helpful. Um, I want to ask you one more question, if that's okay, um, which is that you several conversational beats ago mentioned briefly that um, medication can impact autistic nervous systems differently or unexpectedly. I have had, well, I have had personal experiences of medication affecting me differently. And when I've tried to research it, um, again, studies are hard for many reasons. And I haven't found a lot of research on um how even common medications affect autistic nervous systems differently. It's just not something that's very popular to study. Um, So I wondered if you had any resources or just any personal experiences that you could share for people listening. I've had so many people ask me if that's like a quote unquote real thing or not. Um, And it's hard to assess. Yeah. Yeah. So number one, I will say I did an episode with Dr. Sabu Mubishar, who is pretty much the Northeast expert. He is the medical director of the largest autism-related organization in Connecticut. He provides both inpatient and and, uh, residential services for people. So we did an interview with him. That was really interesting. People might want to check that out. But in general, I will say that it makes perfect sense that if you think about autism and you think how there's so much sensory difficulty, right? Mm -hmm. You think about the way your nervous system functions. Your brain is part of your nervous system. It's all very sensitive, Mm -hmm. you know, and that holds true for medications. You often need lower doses. You need slower titrations. Even with the perfect medicine, it might be a little rocky while your body adjusts because when you're using these psychiatric medicines, it's hitting receptors in your brain. Your brain then has to accommodate that. Mm -hmm. So it has to upregulate or downregulate the it's the neurochemicals that it's producing. So you have to go really slow in autism Mm -hmm. and you have to, you know, I mean, you don't want to crawl, right? You want to get to your goal eventually. And I think that's a tendency for people too. Like, Oh, I don't want to, I want to change it by a teeny little bit. Like that's not necessary because you're going to, no matter how much you change it, it's a little bumpy, Mm -hmm. but you do need to go slow and you do need to consider that, the nervous system in an autistic person is going to be overwhelmed by medications more easily than other people. Mm-hmm. And even though there's like gene tests out now where we do yeah. swabs of people's cheeks and it tells us how the medications are metabolized in psychiatry, um, 
they can have perfectly normal metabolism and still have trouble with these medications. They're Mm -hmm. much more prone to side effects. They're much more prone to um, overstimulation, Mm -hmm. like SSRIs, for instance, SSRIs are supposed to calm you down, right? Mm -hmm. Like they're supposed to soothe that anxiety. When you put somebody with autism on an SSRI, if you start at too high a dose or escalate too quickly, you're going to have big problems. It's going to end up doing the opposite of what you want it to do, mm-hmm. you know? So yeah. that's just a really simple example of why we need to go really slow. And sometimes with autism, the symptoms do not respond to traditional treatments. So mm-hmm. you need to think outside of the box. That's another good thing to think about as far as a provider do they think outside of the box or do they just stick to the algorithm? Right. Mm. Cause you know, there are some research studies that are looking at out of the box options and some of them are tenable. Some of them are not, but sometimes you have to be a little creative. Yeah. Yeah. And what I find is most effective is I'm not like big on polypharmacy because like I said at the beginning, I really would love if none of us were on any medications, mm. Um, that being said, just so your audience knows I'm on psychiatric medications for Mm -hmm. my own anxiety disorder. So I understand this whole issue from front to back. (laughs) And, um, I think in autism, what I often do though, is I take a little bit of this and a little bit of that Mm -hmm. and I bake my own cake, right? Like I make my own recipe instead of just buying the box from the grocery store. Yeah. And that's necessary sometimes. I think one thing that I wish practitioners ask more often, which maybe will help folks listening is like what my goals are for my own treatment. Cause I think sometimes, you know, even with a practitioner, I trust, I come in and I say, you know, this is what's going on with me. And they'll, especially if they're neurotypical, they'll clock a bunch of things as quote unquote problems that I don't view as problems and I don't really need them to be solved. Um, But I'm really here for this, like, you know, for say my anxiety is high. I can't sleep. You're right. I think it's important that we find out what the goals for treatment are, that we identify that. And I also think we have to be careful not to get too greedy, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? Like we see a lot of times this, this happens that we start a patient on a medication, Mm -hmm. they start to do better, Mm -hmm. but they still have these residual symptoms, right? Mm And we get greedy. We're like, oh, it fixed it. Let's increase the dose Mm -hmm. and fix it more. And then before you know it, everything goes to shit. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to be really careful to take the benefits, the improvements and be grateful for them Mm -hmm. and maybe inch up if you can. Yeah. But sometimes you got to realize like some of this shit is just about being human. Yeah. You know, because like I said, again, life is hard. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, as a coach, um, I'll say that a lot of clients I see, you know, we're working on stuff like emotional regulation strategies, for example, isn't kind of easy one. It applies to a lot of different neurotypes where our nervous systems are different. We have a lot of trauma. Our emotional regulation is weird or different or just, you know, unexpected sometimes. And sure, you can kind of attack that with psychiatric and maybe you should. So, you know, we're always going to tell folks check in with your doctor and your mental health team first, but then if you've kind of hit a wall with what the meds can do for you, that might be a place where counseling or therapy or sometimes coaching can step in because we're not medical practitioners. We're not mental health practitioners, but we can help you develop, 
you know, meditation strategies, breathing strategies, counting strategies, those kinds of things. I mean, it would be a magical day. It will be a magical day when there's a pill (laughs) that we can say here, this will fix all of your problems. Wouldn't that be lovely? Yeah. In psychiatry at large, like that's just not how it works. It just doesn't. There is no way you're just never going to be well if you don't incorporate wellness strategies into your world. Mm -hmm. You know, if you don't do a little bit of looking at yourself and figuring out the things that make you feel off, make you feel bad Mm -hmm. or yucky, right? Like if we just keep going through life, exposing ourselves to all of these things that jangle our nervous systems, make us feel uneasy, we're never going to be well, no matter Mm -hmm. what medication you're given, you know? So I think you bring up a good point. Treatment in the psychiatric realm, it has to be holistic. You can't just expect a pill or even a collection of pills, even with the best provider Mm -hmm. to fix your problems. It's just not, it's going to help. It's going to help you have a handle on things so that you can behave and respond to, to stressors in a way that aligns with who you are as a human, Mm -hmm. but it's not going to fix those problems. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that for me personally, going on an SSRI made it possible for me to implement other solutions exactly exactly that I wouldn't have I think, been able to implement where I was but yeah. it didn't so it didn't fix it but it did give me a big step up right in, exactly. in going up the the stairs right. to better health it kind of, you know I think a lot of people they have this impression that medications are going to change who they are mm-hmm. I don't want you know to be different or for the medications to change anything that's actually not what happens what I see happen when people are medicated properly is the medications just remove some of these really difficult boulders so that you can be yourself because I know the person with anxiety and panic attacks is not their real self is not them curled up in the fetal position on their couch. Right. That's not their real self. Mm -hmm. Their real self is the person who's doing the things they want to do. Yeah. And so I think it's important to look at the medications that way as like a helper, like you said, not Mm -hmm. like the fixer, but as a helper to help you, tap into your own internal resources. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. And I think that, you know, again, from my non-medical perspective, when I see a client who's on a good set of meds or just from my family's experience of me going in the SSRI and, you know, the, the children, the child's medication process, it was a lot of sort of trying to clarify, right. Not to change who we are, but to like be able to see ourselves better. By removing mm-hmm. some of this extra exactly. anxiety, like, stress, meltdown, emotional I mean, dysregulation. It's kind of like putting on glasses, right? Yeah. Like you wouldn't be expected to navigate your home mm-hmm. if you couldn't see anything. Yeah. So medication is like putting on glasses. It allows you to tap into your own resources, you know? Yeah, absolutely agree. Thank you so much, John. I really appreciate you coming on. That was an awesome conversation. Um, You're welcome. Can you tell folks a little bit more about where to find you and your podcast? Sure. Yeah. So I'm in a bit of a transition. My practice is uh, closed at the mm-hmm. moment. So I'm not taking any more clients. I am working at a school, residential school for autism, but I do have a website. It's called Aurora Healthy Minds with an S. There's information about the podcast there and also information. There's some resources for local community stuff in my area here in New York. Awesome. But the podcast, Atypical Parenting, it's a little bit different than most of the autism podcasts out there because it's about the neurotypical people, Yeah, (laughs) right? As neurotypical as, you know, crazy me I am, but, um, you know, it's us. 
Honestly, like I hate to kind of say this because I spent a lot of years being blamed for my son's struggle, Um, but it is us, right? Like as the neurotypical people, as the parents raising these amazing children, we need to change. We need to understand. We need to figure it out and not just take advice from anybody who has an opinion to offer, right? Yeah. So that's what the podcast is about. It's about us and changing us as parents, as caregivers, as support people for neurodivergent folks. Mm-hmm. So that's called atypical parenting. It's not just for parents, but that is the name I came up with and I'm sticking with it. I was invited by Dawn to be a, a guest and that's how we met. And I went and listened to so many of them and they're so good. There's an excellent episode about the sibling perspective in the early on. It's um, my daughter did it with me and she's amazing. That's so great. I'm gonna, I'll find it and link yeah. it for folks. The quality is not so great. It was one of the earlier episodes we did, but the content is phenomenal. Yeah. So thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for hanging out with me today. I hope you know that I appreciate you spending your time here because I know there's a lot of other places that you could be. Quick shout out to my editor extraordinaire and co-producer Sam Eisenbaum. If you found value in this podcast, it would mean so much to me if you could just rate and review it on your podcast platform. Now get out there, keep learning and growing so that you can be the best version of yourself as you support the people you love. That's what this podcast is all about.